It's great to be with you this morning and to open God's word with you. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 13 this morning. Uh, I'm not a native of Iowa. I grew up in upstate New York, and uh, I moved out here and came to faith in 2001. I graduated in 04, and I was looking at going back to uh, New York, but God had other plans. I started teaching Hebrew and met my wife and married her in 2006. We had four boys, and then God had a sense of humor and gave us a little girl right at the end. And so if you see them running around, I pray they'll be a blessing to you. And if they're causing trouble, get a hold of us. It happens. Uh, Isaiah 13 and 14 are two chapters of the Bible that I've spent a fair amount of study in, and it's my privilege to open this text up with you. And I pray it's a blessing to you. It's been a blessing to me. As we think through... The, uh, as we think through the Old Testament, as we think through prophecy as far as the end times are concerned, Isaiah 13 and 14 are probably not texts that come to mind. Daniel, you know, that's what comes to mind. For me, Zechariah 14, that was a really big text. Uh, but Isaiah 13, what in the world is Isaiah 13 even about? It's about the day of the Lord. It's about the judgment of God. It's about the anger of the Lord. And that's kind of an interesting theological concept as well. Bear with me for a moment here, because I'm supposed to find a clicker. Where's the clicker at? Oh, here it is. Great, there we are. Thank you. (laughs) Um, The anger of the Lord. You know, when we think about God, we need to think through, how big is your God? Our culture, even though many within evangelicalism, they want to have a God that's all about love and joy and peace. Andy Stanley wrote a book, Irresistible. And in the book, he talks a lot about how the God of the Old Testament, he's not really a God that we should study. We need to study the God of the New Testament. There are several books about Jesus behaving badly. Isn't that an interesting concept? And the author, he's kind of doing a play on words a little bit. He's like, hmm. You know, maybe our understanding of bad is wrong because Jesus can't behave badly. They create this this, uh, dichotomy between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. Like, they're two totally different people. But what did Jesus do when there were people, money changers, and profiting uh, in the temple? You know, he, he wasn't the God of love, joy, and peace. What was he? He was the God of, get out of here, okay? He made a whip and he beat him. He said, get lost. And I would contend that if we have a better understanding of the anger of the Lord, we'll have a better understanding of what Jesus did for us. So let's study through the anger of the Lord. And I hope that you have a better understanding of what Jesus has done for you. God's anger is going to be satisfied. One day it'll be done completely. It'll be done completely, and that's what we're going to look at. God's anger is going to be satisfied in three different ways. The first way that God's anger is satisfied is through through direct intervention. God is going to directly intervene in history. Let's take a look at Isaiah 13 in verse 2. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. 
What do we have in Isaiah 13 too? It's very ambiguous. Who's the them? What in the world is going on here? This is a picture of somebody who's in big distress. They're like, hey, help us out. Put the signal in. <clears throat> you know, wave it around. Let's go. Come over here. We need help. There's a city or at least an army that's looking for reinforcements. It seems to be a city because there's a gate of the nobles. But who is the invading army or who are the uh, defenders that are coming to reinforce? In verses 3 and, and 5, we see God is the one who is reinforcing. We see his weapons being displayed in verses 2 through 5. Take a look at Isaiah 13, 3 with me. Look at this. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. I want to take special note of this army of the Lord. They're first described as consecrated ones, holy ones. When you think of an army, what are they usually not? They're not holy. <laughs> They're very unholy. In fact, you don't want to have anything to do with them. It's like, get them away from me. They, they pillage, they do all kinds of terrible things. But this army, it's a holy army. And then look at this, the second description. I have summoned my mighty men. Okay, that's kind of a common description of an army. They got their warriors. They're really tough guys, okay? Um, and then the third description, look at this. My proudly exalting ones. And my Bible has a, a translator note here, and it could also mean the, those who exalt in my majesty. And that's actually a better translation of that phrase. This proudly exalting ones, when you have a warrior and he's out there and he's slaying combatant after combatant, who gets all the glory? And he becomes proud. You know, that's the way that it is in modern warfare as well. They keep track of how many kills the snipers get. In World War II, you know, they kept track. You can look it up. I remember I was amazed. I looked it up even on Wikipedia. Who is the German ace that shot down how many? Who was the British ace? You know, they kept track of all of these kills. I mean, you know, there's dispute over some of them who really shot that guy down, blah, blah, blah. But the point is that, man, it's like, look at me. But who are these guys? They're the warriors, they're the holy ones, but they're rejoicing not in themselves or their own pride. They're, they're exulting in God's eminence. What an army! That's the kind of army that, that you, that, that's God's kind of army. It's a divine army. Look at a further description of this army in verse 5. They come from a distant land. From the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation. Where, are these, where is this army coming from? From the end of the heavens. Not from the ends of the earth, from the end of the heavens. This is an, a, this is an angelic army. We learn from the New Testament that it is not only the angels, but it is also the church saints that are coming, and they are coming to war. In Isaiah 13, 2 through 5, we have God's army introduced, God's weapons introduced. Within these descriptions, I want to also note two words that kind of stick out. They are coming out for a purpose, and the purpose is God's anger. 
God is a merciful God. He is compassionate. And he is so patient. And this is the God of the Old Testament too. God gave Israel chance after chance after chance. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, they just started to not even believe. You know, the prophets would say, destruction is coming. Yeah, you prophesied that two years ago. You know, they wouldn't believe him. But what it was, was God was being merciful to give them another chance to repent. Again and again and again. God is so merciful. But his anger reaches a point, And then when it is poured out, it's poured out. And who are God's instruments of his indignation? These are his warriors, his weapons. We They're coming to execute his anger. They are coming as weapons of his indignation. God is angry, and he's coming for battle. As they come to battle, we then see the destruction of the Lord in verses 6 through 8. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Do you see that? Isn't that an interesting, it's an interesting command? Wail. You know, this should be a time of rejoicing. God's coming. He's setting up his, his kingdom. And for some, it will be. But at the same time, it is a time of lamentation because of all of the destruction and all of the death. And we look at all of that destruction and all of that death, and we say, God, why? You know, couldn't there have been some other way? No. Okay. Why? Why all of this destruction and death? This text, it actually explains to us why. And, and that's something we need to learn from. God's destruction comes. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. They're terrified. I'm in verse 8 right now. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Now that's an interesting description. They will be in pain like a woman in labor. When the Lord Jesus returns, which by the way, we learned from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 63 and a whole bunch of other texts and oh yeah, Revelation, all right, that Jesus is the one that's the Lord's right arm that's coming down and delivering this punishment. The Jesus of love, joy, and peace. Okay, He's also the Jesus of anger and judgment and, and meeting out the judgment of the Lord God upon the rebels of this earth. Okay, um, this, this destruction, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this destruction. I want you to understand this. This helps us to understand what we've been delivered from. This destruction, when the Lord Jesus returns, it is pangs and agony. This, these words for pangs and agony are like birth pains. Now, birth pains, they don't just come and they're gone. It goes on and it's on and it's on. He uses this this um, example, this uh, simile, the metaphor of, of birth pangs because of its enduring, the lastingness of it. When the Lord Jesus returns and he meets out judgment upon these rebels in this end times battle, 
It will not be something that's like an atomic bomb and it's just kaboom and they're all vaporized and they don't know what happened. Now this may seem very cruel, but I want you to think through for a second. When these people die, where are they going? They're going to a place of torment. So whether they're tormented here on earth for a little while, that will probably be an easier torment than the torment in which they're going to. As they are, as they are destroyed here on this earth, they will, they will be destroyed in time, and it will be painful. Continue to look at verse 8. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. What does that mean, that their faces will be aflame? It says that the Lord Jesus is going to come back in fire. I think that it's literally going to be fire, but it's not like an atomic bomb kind of a fire. It's like a burning fire where they see each other and they can't do anything about it. This is the Lord when he comes back and he wipes them out and he says, I'm done. My anger is being satisfied directly now. Boom! And it's over. This is how he will do it. This is God's destruction. In verses 9 through 12, we get a 9 through 13, we see, oh, we see some the complete destruction of the Lord. This destruction transcends just not just the humans, but also all of the earth. And this also is where we see the reason for God's destruction. Take a look at Isaiah 13 and verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger. You see that? To make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Okay, now skip over to verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Now this is kind of a little Hebrew poetry thing. But when you have, you know, even one word a lot of times, at one section and then one word at the bottom section, it's called an inclusio, and it kind of wraps the whole section together. And so what do we have in Isaiah 13, 9 through 13? We have a section describing the anger of the Lord, the fierce anger of the Lord. And what do we have in Isaiah 13, 9b through 13a? A description of that anger. Let's take a look at it. Isaiah 13, 9b. To make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. What is that description? To destroy its sinners, the land's sinners. As we work through this section, I want you to take note of how many times the word or the words sinners comes about. Verse 10 and 11 describe the or 10, it describes the, the, uh, the cosmic destruction. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. When the Lord Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, one of the signs of the end times is the darkening of the heavens. The sun, the moon, and the stars, and all of those are going to diminish. Verse 11 describes the reason for that judgment. I will punish the world for its evil. And the wicked 
for their iniquity. Now, believer, I want you to think with me for a moment. When was the last time you prayed, Lord, what sin is in my heart? When was the last time you just asked God? This was something I was challenged about like six months or a year ago or something, I don't know. And it's something I've tried to add to my regular prayer life. You know what? I'm a sinner. And you hate sin. Why are you destroying this world, Lord? Because of the sin. Why is God angry? Because of my sin. I will punish the world for its evil. And the wicked for their iniquity. This is the reason the Lord Jesus is returning. If it was a righteous haven or whatever, then it probably would have transpired in some other way. It would have, because God wouldn't have wiped out the, the righteous. But instead, man, he, he sins and he sins and he sins. And we need to hate sin. And you get nothing else out of this entire lesson. I pray that you would hate sin. I pray that you would just ask the Lord, what sin is in my life that I need to confess? And then you go and you confess it. And you have that right relationship with God. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. It continues. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and low, lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. This is a characteristic of men who are in power. They're proud, and they're arrogant, and they're pompous. And this becomes a theme not only in Isaiah 13, but also in chapter 14, and is what we're going to talk about next week. The interesting thing is that these words for the arrogant and the pompous, we saw one of these words already but it was the Lord. It was back in Isaiah 13 and verse 3. The ones, those who exalt in my majesty, that's like the ones who exalt in my pride. Isn't that interesting to think about? That God's pride, that's something to exalt about. God's glory, his eminence, his pride, that's something we can exalt about but man, man is just man. And these arrogant ones, they are just going to get wiped out by the Lord at this last day. In verse 12, it shows the extent of the destruction. I will make, I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Okay, do you see what he did there? I, I don't know about you, but I don't own any gold. <laughs> well, I guess I have a little bit on my finger. But... I don't have any gold. And gold's really expensive. I haven't followed it recently. I remember it was like $1,500 an ounce. And oh man, and it fluctuates so, so much. But just an ounce. I mean, that's nothing. Just an ounce, like $1,500. It's ridiculously expensive. Gold is very, very rare. And, and what do we have here? Mankind's going to be so rare, it's going to be more rare than gold. 
And then what does he do? He ups the ante in the second line. Mankind will be more rare than the gold of Ophir, than even the gold of this one little location. That's how rare mankind will be. When God's anger is poured out upon the earth, mankind is going to be annihilated. And when, when I say the mankind is going to be annihilated, the sinners are going to be annihilated. That's how the text describes them. That's who they are, and that's why they are dying. The Lord Jesus comes back, and he will intervene directly. His kingdom will be established. Sometimes, however, the Lord does not intervene directly. Sometimes he intervenes indirectly. Now, most of your Bibles probably just go right into the next section in chapter 14, but there's actually a little word there in Isaiah 13, 14, and it's translated often, and it will be. And it kind of doesn't do much to the narrative. It's just kind of like, and it'll be, blah, 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 blah. And that's why the ESV doesn't translate it here. But there's two of those words in this passage. The first one is right here in Isaiah 13 and verse 14. I believe it's there because it's marking a division mark in the text. We have in Isaiah 13, 14, a different battle. And as we look at Isaiah 13, 14 through 22, we're going to see very different circumstances. This is going to, yeah, and it'll be very clear that we have two different battles. The next, and it will be, statement comes in Isaiah 14, 3. Isaiah 14, 3. So if you want to study this out some more, you know, you could put a little mark there in your Bible or whatever. But the structure of this oracle is Isaiah 13, 2 through 13. Isaiah 13, 14 through 14, 2. The chapter division isn't a good chapter division. And then Isaiah 14, 3 to, I'm going to turn my page here, 23. And then 24 to 27 is a sign that concludes the oracle. That is the oracle. That is the oracle concerning Babylon. By the way, I was going to mention at the beginning, these oracles that we have in Isaiah 13, there's a series of oracles against the nations. The first one is right here in Isaiah 13 and verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which the Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. We have a series of oracles which extend into Isaiah chapter 23. The book of Isaiah is a fascinating book to study. It's so big. I never took a class on Isaiah. None was ever offered. I taught Isaiah last year for the first time. It's like, how do you teach 66 chapters in a semester-long class. And I looked at some, I saw some other professors, and they're like, yeah, he taught it. He made it through chapter 10. <laughs> that didn't help. I found one guy that, one professor gave me some good, a good tip, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I always have to skip the oracles against the nations. That's the part we're studying. <laughs> 13 through 23. He's like, I want to study it, but it's just there's so much, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, man, I don't want to skip this. I've studied this part. This is really good stuff. This, uh, this has changed my life. All right, so 
there's a little bit of uh, background information with the whole book and the study of the, uh, our, our chapter, our, or, our oracle here. So, and it will be, and what will be in verse 14? Like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Look at this. People are actually running away. People are fleeing for their lives, and, you know, they're at least trying to get away. It's not like fires vapor, well, not vaporizing them, but fires incinerating them. This is a different battle. This is a different destruction. Continue reading in verse 15. Whoever is found will be thrust through. They're not burnt with fire. Whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Look at verse 16. This is clearly not an army of angels. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Clearly a different battle is going on in Isaiah 13, 14 through 22. This battle is is, uh, this is God using an indirect means of intervening and, uh, and uh, satiating his anger. God will intervene indirectly, and that's what he does here. In verse 17, we see the actual agents of this battle. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah, when God overthrew them. So we learn here that it's the Medes who are attacking. Babylon is the city. Now Babylon was, was destroyed, was conquered by a Medo-Persian army in 539 BC. And many believe that this prophecy was fulfilled at that time. However, when the Medo-Persian army conquered the city, they didn't destroy anything. It was like they chopped off the head and just put a new head in place, and, and the administration just kept right on going. I mean, Daniel, he was the, uh, a high-ranking official in the Babylonian, ar or not army, in the Babylonian government, and then in the Persian government that followed. What does this text say? It will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. That certainly didn't happen when the Medes conquered Babylon in 539 BC. You can go to Babylon now. You could take a tour of it. You may want to get some private security on your tour, but if you wanted to, you could go and you could do that. The city of Babylon still exists today. God sometimes, I should refrain or rephrase, God usually intervenes indirectly like this. When there is wickedness on this earth, God usually intervenes indirectly. It's only when things get super, super bad, then God intervenes directly, like what we saw in Isaiah 13, 2 through 13. The third point of the sermon is that God will intervene mercifully. God will intervene mercifully. And I heard that amen. <laughs> And it's my prayer that God has already intervened mercifully in each and every one of your lives. I get this from Isaiah 14, 1 even. For the Lord will have 
compassion on Jacob. Look at that. God is having mercy. But to prove this, I want to actually go to the New Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Romans 3.23. Hey, you know that verse. Romans 3.23 provides a nice starting point for us. I'll give you a moment to get there. The anger of the Lord. What can satisfy the anger of the Lord? You know, we need to understand our sinfulness, how God hates it, and, and that he angers him. We need to always keep that in mind. And then when we think about the gospel or when we're trying to live out the gospel, we need to keep the anger of the Lord in mind. Because it's God's anger, it's his, it's his wrath, that's what we deserve. Why don't we get it? Why don't we receive that anger of the Lord like they, re they will receive it at the end of days? What do we have in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Boy, that is a big word, propitiation. What does that mean? It means a wrath-removing sacrifice. God's angry at the sin. Somebody has to pay the penalty. Jesus paid the penalty. And as a result, the wrath of God is satisfied. This is justice. Our culture has a completely messed up idea of justice, okay? They just think time and time again, you can mess up, you can do tons and everything wrong, okay, whatever, and it's just, oh, compassion and compassion and compassion. You know, there's this thing that God says, there needs to be some, some punishment for the sin that's committed, and you sinned. There needs to be a punishment for it. And the punishment is laid on him. The wrath of God is laid on Jesus. We live in an interesting culture that really doesn't respect others. It doesn't understand anger. When you stood before a king in the ancient days, you did so with fear and trepidation. If you said something wrong or he didn't like you, he'd take your head off. We live in a totally different culture where the president of the United States can be mocked. Or when he tells somebody to do something, they don't do it. And even when it's him that's in control... You know, I've seen this, and it just blows my mind, the lack of respect for the office. Yeah. 
In that culture, that guy would have been dead. They would have hoisted his corpse up on a pole and said, if anybody does that, this is what's going to happen to him. There's not a fear. There's not a respect for God. You need to fear this almighty God and this justice that he requires. And let me tell you, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, the wrath of God is still on your account. And you don't want it. Whether it comes directly or indirectly, it's bad news both ways. You can find answers here. So then you can say, and you can read these words, justified, redeemed, reconciled, regenerated. Talk to myself. Talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to show you how you can have a, a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ his Son. So then the wrath of God does not come upon you. It goes on him. He died for you. That's what propitiation is. Now, believer, God's merciful intervention is what motivates Christian service. Why do you do acts of righteousness? Well, because the law says so. Do X, Y, and Z. Wrong answer. Why should you obey God's law? You don't need to obey God's law. Here's what you need to do. You need to think, wow, God, I deserve to burn because, man, I did this and that and this sin. I'm just nothing. That's what I deserve. But instead, Lord, you did something for me. You died for me so then I don't have that. Wow, God, these are mercies. These are mercies that you have given to me that I don't deserve at all. This justification, this redemption, this reconciliation, the wrath of God being placed on Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the blood of the Lord Jesus. These mercies are your motivation for Christian service. You want to obey God. You want to serve him. You want to obey your parents. You want to serve in the church. You want to reach out to your unbelieving coworker or, or neighbor or whoever it is. You want to do these things because look at what Jesus has done for you. This is your act of spiritual worship. It's your reasonable service. Romans 12.1 is a transition point in the book of Romans. He's discussing all of the theological truths that he's in chapters 1 through 11. Reconciliation, redemption, um, 
Reconciliation, redemption, justification. These mercies of God. And what does he say? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's who you are. You're a living sacrifice. Holy and set apart to God. And what is this? This is just your reasonable service. This is what God expects of you. Believer, are you living in light of the gospel? Are you living in light of the anger of the Lord and what the Lord Jesus has done for you? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time that we're able to look at the anger of the Lord. And I pray for the people here at Calvary Baptist in Mount Pleasant. I pray if there are any here that they would understand your anger and what, you, what your word says about your anger. I pray they would take it seriously and that they would, that they would repent of, uh, that they would talk to one of us, that they would repent of their sin and turn to you with their whole heart. And Lord, I pray for the believers here, as I'm sure most of the ones here are true believers in you. I pray that they would just reflect upon the truths of this text and that they would live in light of the gospel, that they would live in light of the anger of the Lord and who you are and what you expect, the holiness that, that, uh, that you expect, the sacrifice that Jesus paid so that we don't have to experience that anger. I pray that we'd be in awe of that, in awe of the, the, um, the ability that all we have to do is accept this as a gift and then we do not have to experience this wrath. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for suffering on that cross so then we can be free. In Jesus' name, amen.